Welcome to another episode of Grid Forward Chats, a podcast series with industry leaders on what lies ahead for our electric grid. These podcasts are hosted by Grid Forward Executive Director Bryce Yonker. In this special episode, Bryce chats with Audrey Zibelman, CEO and General Manager of the Australian Energy Market Operator. It was recorded live during the Grid Forward Annual Member Meeting on August 20th, 2020. So we're just going to keep it casual and uh, welcome to uh, our first live edition of Grid Forward Chats. Thanks for being on with us, Audrey. Sure. It's glad to be here. I feel I have a little grandson who's four months old who lives in Eugene. So it's nice to talk to you guys because I feel a little bit proximate to him. So I think everybody here knows about your background in New York. Um, I, I don't know that everybody, you know, knows as much about, you know, the Australian energy market operator. So can you tell us a little bit about, uh, AEMO and your role there and sure. Happy to do so. So the Australian energy market operator is probably the equivalent would be the California ISO and all the RTOs in the U S we're a not-for-profit. Our responsibilities are around grid system operations and market operations. Uh, and uh, system planning. So we develop what's known as the integrated system plan. The differentiator really between us and the ISOs is that in Australia, we also operate the gas markets. As you know, the ISOs only operate the electric markets. And then also AEMO is the national system operator. So there, there are actually three grids in Australia. The Eastern grid, which goes, is actually the longest skinniest interconnect in the world it goes from northern queensland down to south australia so in the u.s equivalent it would be basically starting in quebec and going down through to texas to because you australia's geographic footprint is about the equivalent of the lower 48 in the u.s and then we also have the western interconnect southwest interconnect which is in western australia and it's separated uh and that's uh, pretty much where we would sort of the equivalent of California, New Mexico, and up to Oregon and Washington. So the states are big. There are only five states, six states with Tasmania. We also operate Tasmania, but the population is 26 million. So you can imagine a very long skinny grid covering a really long area serving a fairly small population. So I saw that the integrated system plan recently came out. Can you talk a little bit in general, before we start getting into the specifics on kind of the overall strategy, what's included in that plan, and what's at the top of the agenda for the organization? So the dynamic here is similar to the U.S., but in terms of what's happening in the transition, but pretty pretty much accelerated. We have most of uh, Australia's generation historically has came from uh, coal generation. It's a you know very big mining country, and coal is one of its primary fuel sources. We're at a point in time where about 63% of the coal we expect to be leaving the power system just by age over the next 20 years. Australia signed on to the Paris Accord and uh, various states have ambitious renewables policies, but you know, a little bit reminiscent of the states. Every states have their individual policies. The federal policy is a little less ambitious than some of the state policies. But nonetheless, we're seeing an economic change. So what the integrated system plan has done is a 20-year outlook of what's going to be the natural transgression that's happening in the power system in Australia. So we've already seen a really significant uptake into renewables where solar and wind are the most economic alternatives 
for us, um, backed by storage, whether it's hydro storage or battery storage or a little bit of gas. Gas here is not as cheap as the US, so it struggles to compete even uh, with storage going forward. And then the other thing that's interesting in Australia is the uptake of rooftop solar. So we're seeing basically uh, looking at 20 to 30 to 40% rooftop solar supplying native demand over the same period. And you know, right now in parts of the country, rooftop solar represents our single largest generation source. So we're actually seeing the grid become distributed very quickly and the need to really start thinking about the kind of things that uh, I know your group has been thinking about, transactional grids, two-way power systems, things like that. And the challenges really associated with operating this type of system that's, that's really uh, dependent on variable renewable energy, but also where you can be in a single day struggling, like we're seeing in California this week, where in a, you might in the afternoons have extremely low demand as a consequence of um, all the rooftop solar, followed in the evening hours with very high demand as that solar peels off and there's nothing to and, and it hasn't been absorbed during the course of the day with storage. So the grid is really having to reinvent itself. And you know, we really talk about it as we truly are flying the airplane and, and rebuilding it simultaneously. But it's moving into a direction of, um, and what the ISP shows is that the cheapest thing for Australia to do going forward is to increase the interconnections between the states, develop out what we call renewable energy zones so that we can essentially firm these resources as they're entering into, if you think about it, the main highway of the power system, dealing with integration of DER, and then also starting to look at more and more intelligence in the system. We're doing some really interesting work around grid forming inverters. You know, basically, how do you move from a synchronous system to one that's inverter-based? And what does that mean in terms of power system dynamics and operations? All these issues, by the way, so we think about things anymore around things like under-frequency load shed when the demand gets too low, minimum load problems, things that no one ever really worried about historically in the grid, inertia, system strength, frequency management, voltage management. So it's for us that the new frontier is not so much as how do you make these resources economic, because that's that's happening. The question is how do you operate a power system and how do you design a power system that is is really based on variable renewable resources and particularly in a climate like ours where we can have extremely harsh summers as you as you saw last summer, um, not cold winters like we have on the Northeast and parts of the US, but also a very dispersed geographic base. So you're going very long distances over transmission. So that's what we're up to. That's what the integrated system plan really looks to accomplish and to really lay out a roadmap for how do we get this done with the point that it's an economic issue. It's not, we're not advising on policy. We're just, we're actually advising on system engineering. So, so you talked on a number of the macro factors, but one follow-up question, how does the relationship between wholesale and retail markets there impact what's going on in Australia? Well, here, you know, the market is, was liberalized in the nineties. And so there's retail competition. I think the thing that we're really trying to sort through still is the role of the distribution utility. In, in a new market along the lines of the types of things we worked at in New York in terms of the 
creating uh, the distribution system operator because they have to operate their physical assets and how we provide access to DR to market so that we're really talking about load shaping rather than peak shaving and how do we manage things at the edge of the system. So what do we really need for in terms of platforms and market design to, to enable that so that can be efficient development? The idea is, is that you would have a single wholesale market but that on the back of that wholesale market, you could have multiple types of retail markets that people could do, whether it's virtual power generation or blockchain type initiatives that could be settled against a wholesale market or as a way to um, get the value of load management, load shaping. So as I was saying, you know, to me, the things that we're gonna have to start thinking about in, in our system, in, our, in the energy system, is how do we compensate people we always know we want to compensate people to reduce their demand when prices are high. How do we compensate people to, to actually use their batteries to create demand when we need them to do it? Or how do, and is, and is, that, a, is that a transaction that we want, we want to look at? Or is that a utility service that we require people who put rooftop solar, imagine how disruptive that would be, to take from the utility? because otherwise the utility has to compensate by doing other things to address that, those minimum load issues that we're dealing with. So these are, it's almost like unpeeling an onion. We solve one issue, you know, we've gotten wind and solar to be economically uh, advantageous, getting batteries there. Now we're gonna have another set of issues is what is the utility service and what, what is the fair compensation for behaviors and who should pay it. And, and we're having conversations about that, but. And I think if I can, just looking at the press, it seems like California is starting to have to turn its head to the same set of issues. I'm not sure about the rest of the country. And, and when you look at this, the solution set for that DSO to offer its services, like you were talking with us a handful of years ago, LMP plus D, is, is the structure of the compensation evolving between customer and provider? And, and are you seeing the right set of toolkit solutions out there or is is there a different set of, of solutions that you know we're, we're still not yet to see in practice yet well from a market design perspective interestingly enough despite you know having a significant a level of uh, distributed resources australia has not ha does not have a wholesale demand market like we do in part of the rtos we're just developing that right now and that's something i sort of was a little surprised to see because as you know in the u.s we for a long time said, look, demand response is a great uh, moral equivalent to peaking generation is a lot cheaper. So we should, we should get those markets in. And we're now starting to look at two-sided markets. So fair compensation for load response in the market is, is something we're looking at. What I was alluding to is this, this other secondary issue that's appearing is who should be paying for, or how do we compensate people for the recognition that minimum load, just like high peaks, is a system cost because some, somehow or another, we don't want to load shed because the load goes too low and we can't manage it. So how do you compensate people or what's the right price signal when it's not an energy price that's, that's the problem? In other words, you're not looking at too much demand and so uh, and a price spikes in energy. What you're looking at is too little frequency and voltage management and that problem is being created by too much solar on the roof. So how do you set the right kind of economic incentives for people to use their batteries 
and things like that during those hours. Because otherwise, the distribution utility is either going to have to do it themselves and do want them to charge the non-solar owners for that, or do you charge the solar owners for the fact that you've now had to basically provide it a shock absorber? And what does that look like? It's not an energy price. Is it a fixed demand charge, an excess charge associated with putting solar on the roof? And it's just a new issue. I don't think in this industry we ever really worried about minimum demand as a problem. We always, it was always a goal was to reduce demand. And I think, uh, I'll just go on. I think that to me, as I, you know, as just sort of a student of this industry, what I think is so fascinating is that where energy itself, LMP, was always the dominant sort of level element of the power bill. The real issue is, is that as we look at more zero marginal cost resources dominating really the, the resource mix, we're looking at close to um, probably 74% of our energy coming from wind and solar by 2030. And, and, and now parts of the country, it's 150%. We've had much energy. Pricing the LNP on scarcity doesn't make sense. What we're missing is frequency and voltage and inertia and those resources. And so the question then becomes, what's the right compensation scheme? Because a scarcity price signal is not going to bring in the investments we need, nor it is really accurately tracking what's the you know, supply and demand equation. The scarcity may be around frequency, inertia, system strength. And that cost is actually created by the fact that wind and solar is displacing thermal generation on the power system, which provides that capability naturally. So it's a real market redesign. And I've been talking to Paul Joskow a little bit about this. And I think it's something that's been recognized that the 90s style market around energy as the dominant resource that you need to price in may need to be altered as we're thinking about zero marginal cost free electrons on the energy sector, but you need other types of comp compensating capabilities that need to be priced into the market. And so those compensating elements, is that a transaction between either aggregators or owner operators of specific distributed resources and the distribution utility, or is there other parties in an arrangement that are going to provide the services that you've been mentioning? Well, you know, and I think that's a really, that's the, that's the nub of the question um, that we all have to answer. To me, what we were you know, looking at in New York was the idea that the distribution utility would be required to provide that capability to the power system and they could buy it essentially from third parties located in the distribution system. But as the distribution system operator, was really their job is to manage the, the load chain. That's what I was gunning for. And here it's it's not yet resolved. Is that the role of the distribution utility? Is that the role of the wholesale market operator? You know, I, I have my opinions, but I'm not the regulator here. I think it's always more, it's probably going to be more efficient to make it the role of the distribution utility. But you know, it's a question as whether they want to take on that risk and is the regulatory mechanism there for them. That's what we were trying to design into New York, and uh, it'll be up to the regulator and the distribution utilities here. If, if not them, then AEMO is going to have to um, settle that market. And I, But the question is, and this is really gets difficult, is a lot of these issues when it gets down to below the substation are problems that the distribution utility really needs to solve. So AEMO can't really tell them how to manage 
their assets. Our concern is if they're unmanaged, it can create a disturbance on the big power grid yeah. that we then we're going to have to compensate for. It's almost like you got it. We got to walk through it, all the issues and find the best solution. I, I think ideally, you know, I'm still of the mind like I was in Portland. This would be a great thing to say that this is now the job of the distribution utility to provide the cap- hosting capability on its grid of this services and then to identify the set of services it should be providing to accommodate that hosting capability and then work out with the regulator how to charge for those services, whether it's to just those who put solar on their roof or is it to everyone because everyone's gonna benefit from a cheaper grid. Those types of things I think need to be thought through, but that's the way, that's where I am, where I still remain is I think that's that's a good job for them because that is their job is really reliability and security at a local level. But regardless, um, you know, I think it's the next frontier that we need to, to walk through. When you think about some of the technology toolkit, maybe not just the generation side of the equation, but all of the platforms and enabling functionality on the system, what kind of raises uh, to the top of your mind as far as some of the things in the near uh, to midterm that really, you know, Australia needs to put into practice in order to reach the objectives it has? I know you've mentioned uh, storage a couple times, and uh, you quickly mentioned blockchain. But what are kind of some of the elements of the building blocks from a technology standpoint that you think really need to move forward to to get to this future effectively? For us, there's a number, and there's there are not uh, some things are similar and some some aren't. So one is is how we build transmission, and when we build transmission, we are really talking about you know as you know the the difference between thermal and renewables is you really need to build the transmission access to where the best locations are for the renewables as opposed to putting the generation where the best access is to the well it's still the fuel it's just a different fuel source so the question then becomes for the first time in this industry where we used to build networks and and resources in order to address increasing demand for energy in Australia, uh, as I think in the US, we are continuing to see demand, even with electrification, not growing at the level that we, we saw historically. So you're actually building assets to replace aging plants as opposed to just meet demand. And the second is, is that you're building more interstate interconnectors. So the typical way of thinking about transmission of, of just connecting generation to demand, it's actually creating really diversity in the resources because we're big enough that the wind will blow differently in Queensland than it will in Tasmania and the solar will come in at different time zones. So you want to take full advantage of the fact that uh, the power, the network itself is, is integrated and you take advantage of that kind of locational diversity and time diversity. To do that requires a different economic construct on the value of transmission then simply looking at it, is it better than building generation? Because you're really talking about connecting generators as opposed to connecting generators to, to load. So that, that's one piece that we need to think about. And then the other is when you plan out the transmission, considering in advance, well, what do you need for firming? What do you need for inertia? What do you need for frequency? How is that going to be provided? Is that a market-based solution or is that going to be a essentially a network service and is that more efficient so those things are big things we have to resolve 
and we're working on. The other is the market design, as I mentioned, just really thinking through how do you attract these types of resources? Is it if energy scarcity is insufficient, which it will be because as we put more renewables on, the energy price continues to drop. So it's not going to attract new investment. What's the new market design is the other piece. The third is say, resolving the issue at the distribution utility. What's their role going forward? And how do we integrate these resources and can we create a single platform? The other one that, that is really important to me is really looking at the decision tools that we have to use and how do we introduce AI and machine learning and things like that into the operations of the power system. You know, understanding, for example, now that climate, not just temperature, but wind speed, cloud cover, cloud speed, where the clouds are, dust, all of these things will impact the output we have of these renewable resources. You can't simply run that through three people sitting and saying, well, what was the temperature last year on August 20th on a Thursday, it's Thursday here, in Melbourne? And that's likely to be the same thing with the same temperature. It's all irrelevant. So we, we actually, our forecasts are very dynamic now. And so understanding how we think about that and how to share that information. So I think the one thing that I would say has been undercooked in this industry is recognizing how much more we need to put investment into the decision tools, the forecasting tools, the use of AI into helping manage a power system that is now you know, dependent on instantaneous climate decisions for its operational. And if I look at the challenges that my colleagues in California ISO have been having this week, it just tells you that history is just not a good indicator of the future because for us, essentially, with all the, the solars going up, we put one panel up every six minutes. We're just adding generators every month and some of them are undetected. And so you can't really think about history as sort of a as a predictor of the future, we need to really think about intelligence and how do we use that better in the system. So those are the things that keep me wake at wake at night. Pardon this quick interruption. Do you like the in-depth interviews on Grid Forward Chats? Subscribe to our channel on Apple, Google, Spotify, or Podbean apps. That way, you don't miss a single chat. And learn more about Grid Forward at gridforward.org. Now back to the show. I definitely wanted to ask you about resiliency. So we're all living through a global pandemic and we found ways to have operational continuity, which is certainly an element that we never thought we were going to go through with, with regards to resilient operations. But with regards to last season's wildfires and, you know, cyber or, uh, you know, other storm recovery, you know, big, it's a big issue here. It's a, it's a big issue there. What are you guys learning? from these disturbances and where the higher vulnerabilities are and where deeper investments need to be made? That's a great question. Uh, you know, coming out of last year's fires, we were, we were able to manage the bulk power system, which was great. Although I did have to call the federal minister of energy and tell him that the capital was on a single uh, inner tie and we might, have to we might have to cut it off if the fires moved in a certain area. So that was an interesting conversation. But beyond that, we, we were able to make it, but it was very, you know, a lot, a lot of challenges throughout the summer. I think that what became clear, though, for people is when you saw, and I, I know you saw the pictures 
of how painful people sitting, you know, on the foreshore in these in these communities without any electricity, but also without any phone service. So they are absolutely disconnected, and there's no way they could communicate because they're dependent now on on cell service. And that was a little bit of what we found in Sandy too. Was uh, cell towers only had 72 hours of backup service. So after three days, we were losing communication, and we were lo- and of course we didn't have heat, and we didn't have electricity, and that was just extremely frightening to people. So I think that what we need to do is really think about microgrids and resilience in these communities and recognize now with the capabilities of rooftop solar and storage and creating these systems, the ability, even if you don't want to electrify the entire community, but having an ability to continue to make sure that you can maintain certainly the mission critical capabilities and also maintain safety through these microsystems during these uh, as a as an element of resilience, I think is going to be really important going forward. Uh, and I saw after Sandy, uh, when the governor did a, a listening tour about what people wanted to see, uh, that was the thing that was uh, most difficult. And the story there and is the story here is, you know, someone's grandmother on the 30th floor of a, of a tower in in Brooklyn and the Bronx and having to go down 30 floors to get water was just not a tolerable thing that you could say in in New York, you could continue to tolerate. You can't allow that to happen. Here, someone's grandmother in a rural community, not able to get out, not able to call, not able to say whether she's okay, is just, you you can't tolerate that. And so beyond all the horrible devastation on animals and everything else that, that we all witnessed, it's just the fear factor of um, suddenly your society is no longer giving you the security that, that you want. And I think that's that's why thinking about microsystems, in addition to what we're thinking about, which is hardening, um, the other things that we're thinking about from resilience is, you know, uh, these power systems, they weren't designed uh, for 130 degree temperature. And so what do we need to do in areas like Australia where we expect to see that? And um, what kind of ratings and hardening do we need to do? Uh, One more question, then probably for our wrap-up. You mentioned uh, demand was pretty stagnant there, as it is here and I think in most industrialized markets across the world. However, the, the opportunity around electrification seems to kind of be right on the cusp. So where are things there on the front edge of electrified transportation or other electrification opportunities? And and how do you see that impacting the integrated plan or just impacting the grid in general there? I think a couple of things. One is there's policies around electrification, but not with the sort of level of commitment that we see in parts of Europe. So it's, it's a little bit uncertain, but we do expect to pick up in the 20s and 30s. And frankly, uh, I think w- because Australia is a small economy, once Europe and, and Japan and U.S. move, it will move quickly because that's where they buy their cars from. So it's it's basically a, a buyer economy when it comes to that, and we'll catch up. The other thing that's really interesting in Australia is the, is the green hydrogen economy. And so we have an opportunity here because of uh, we are a great location for wind and solar to actually create green hydrogen and as an export fuel 
as Cole that diminishes is thinking about that. So the question really becomes on a power system sector. You have certainly the, the domestic power system that is around electricity, but then there could be a, another significant power system where you create hubs of transmission associated with producing green hydrogen that you could then export as a fuel to Europe, Asia, you know, US. And so the electrification you know, is an interesting concept that you're actually thinking about it, not just for domestic use, but, it, but as potentially export. And there's actually even a plan that one of our entrepreneurs has to build an undersea cable between Australia and Indonesia as a way of exporting wind and solar to you know, developing countries. So I think that we'll see more and more electrification and that will increase demand. What that suggests though, is, is that you're, you're really, again, it's different than we thought about the power sector before where you are building to meet consumer demand. If you're talking about nation building around in a reaction to COVID and how we're gonna do it, then it becomes a question is whether transmission should, and, and these resources are being built just for domestic electricity use, or are they built, being built for other economic value? And then if so, who should pay for it? Should it be the electric consumers or should it be taxpayers, if you will, and who are gonna benefit from that, that economic growth? And I, I think those are the kind of issues that uh, people are beginning to grapple with. And frankly, I think will be some of the issues that have to be addressed in the US too would be, is the regulator like the Public Service Commission in New York going to set prices for what electric vehicles should pay for fuel? Is that where it should go? Are they electric consumers? Or is there something else that they, that who should be doing that? I think those are gonna be um, sort of the next generation of issues we're gonna to have to think through. I have a final question for you. I always like to ask a, a wrap-up question in two parts. Can you share one or multiple if they come to mind, one thing that you think the industry hasn't been taking seriously enough in the recent short term? And then on a flip side of that question, what has changed more than you would have expected? Something we're not paying attention to that we should and something that's changed a lot. So, I mean, based on my experience here, I think the thing that we have not paid enough attention to in the industry is the fact that when, as I was saying before, when renewables become the dominant portion of the system, energy prices will go down. And that therefore all of the things that we sort of designed around scarcity and, and locational marginal pricing of energy no longer becomes the really relevant factor on how people are gonna make investment decisions. And so our ability to adapt markets to actually address what's, what's the price value, it seems, much slower, right, harder than, than it was. And I think part of it is, and this is sort of the big new thought I've, I've sort of developed and been testing with people, is that this isn't just like, uh, you know, we're changing out coal for gas. And so locational marginal pricing is telling us the most efficient next investment is gas. We're really changing out technology. We're going from landlines to cell towers. And so therefore the market that was designed around efficient allocation of those types of thermal resources and nuclear is not the right market design or regulatory design for zero marginal cost resources and distributed resources. And, and maybe what we're trying to do is fit something in, which is creating dislocation and is maybe just not be the right direction. Maybe we need to build new markets for the new types of resources 
that are better calibrated to their attributes and then just deal with the fact that these older investments you know are are need to be managed so that we have a smooth transition rather than trying to fit it all in so it is a little bit like telephones we made the decision to go from landline to to cell and fiber we provided a recognition that that needs to be a protection to those operating the copper because they needed to you know they were going to lose their revenue base so we needed to kind of deal with that transition but we never really thought that we should regulate wireless on the same basis as we regulated wired communications. And yet we're seeming to wanting to do the same thing in energy. And I think it's creating a lot of problems in the markets and nobody's really coming up with good solutions. So I'm sort of ready to say, well, maybe we should just assume that it's not the same technology. Therefore, it shouldn't be the same market design. Therefore, let's design for the new market and deal with the transition from the oldest to separate problems. So that's that's sort of one piece that I think we're not dealing with well. And then the other is this whole role of networks, distribution networks, and the role of the distribution utility and the role of transmission in this future to recognize again, <clears throat> these regulated parts of the system may have very different functions. <clears throat> and so we may need to think about how we regulate these different and their roles. And we need to come up, I think very quickly in the US with a very common review of the role of the distribution utility and how do we create platforms and services so that the people who are manufacturing smart devices and things like that don't have to deal with you know 5,000 different market designs and different ways of interfacing, but rather we, we try to look at standards and approaches to make it, to take the transaction costs out of that part of the business. I think we're, we're not dealing with that kind of issue well enough and so what happens then is that people make invest and this is really hard right when consumers make investment decisions in solar with a certain inverter and then we have to change the standard for the inverter because the existing standard is no longer good when it represents 30 percent of the of the power system that really makes consumers upset and so we we really need to get ahead of that and really start thinking about it as a consumer good with this right kind of regulatory apparatus to make it both efficient and standardized as quickly as we can hopefully universally standardized so that people can just know that wherever their washing machine lands their smart washing machine they don't have to rewrite the program because it's a different different design for how it works on the grid so those are the two takeaways for me that I I, w I think we need to get on with. Yeah, Audrey, there is so much there around the future of the renewables, market structure, uh, adoption of innovation and technology. And we really appreciate you being on with us to, to share some thoughts. Sure. Well, take care, guys. Stay healthy. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you. Yeah, good to see you. Thanks, everybody, for, for being on with our live session. Thanks for listening to this episode of Grid Forward Chats our podcast series with industry leaders on what's driving grid modernization ahead. Check out our website at gridforward.org to learn more about our podcasts, virtual events, becoming a member, and our mission to promote grid innovation and accelerate modernization across our region.